Now we live in a culture of instant gratification. Who's heard that phrase, that term? A few of you. Instant gratification, the idea that uh, whatever we want to get, we'd better get it quickly. It's got to happen now. It's got to happen yesterday. Maybe the day before yesterday. It's got to be quick. It's got to be on time. And I think uh, we see this in so many different areas and levels of our culture. And one of those would be in retail. Now, I'm looking at some of you and seeing that you're slightly younger than me. I just hit my mid-30s just a couple of weeks ago. And I want to tell you, uh, those of you who are older than me, you're already aware of this because I grew up in, in this. And, and, but some of you who are younger, you won't have heard of this. But there, there was this thing back in the day called the high street. I don't know if any of you have heard of it, but what, what, what it would be is that you would live in a village or a town or maybe even a city, and if you needed something, you would go to this place, the high street, and there were shops on it, physical shops, yeah, like buildings, rooms that you could go into and things would be there and you could buy them. And if they didn't have what you wanted, I know that, let's let that sink in. If... If they didn't have what you wanted, that, there was a day when that was the case. You would go perhaps to the manager of the store and say, look, is the, can you get this? And they'd say, well, I'll have to ring someone up. And you'd wait. And sometimes you'd wait a day or, or days, and then sometimes you'd wait a week. And if you really, really wanted it, then perhaps you could travel to the next place where there was another high street. <laughs> and maybe that place would have what you wanted. This is how it used to work. In retail, now we have Amazon, and the pain of travel, uh, and the connection between travel and retail has been broken forever, at least our travel, so we can sit there and order, and there is no question of whether or not what we want will be available to us, it's always going to be available, right at our fingers, what we want is available, that's the way a retail works, it's a culture of instant gratification. I have found myself, and this is a confession, I will periodically confess sin to you in this environment. And uh, I have found myself getting frustrated at different times when same-day delivery is not available. <laughs> have you ever done that? You're like, what do you mean I can't get it after five tonight? I need it. I need it. I must have it. You've experienced that maybe as well. We also see this in the sphere of relationships, I think. You know, I did a little bit of research. I actually listened to a friend who'd done a lot of research talk about this. And we see this in the sphere of relationships. I'm thinking particularly of romantic relationships. Now, in the 18th and 19th centuries here in this country, most marriages would have been arranged. That is, your parents would decide, uh, based upon, a, I, I imagine, a different set of criteria, depending on who your parents were, who it was that was suitable for you to have as a life partner to marry. Arranged marriages. And, and, and that move, that transition to what this, this thing known as courting. Now, courting, uh, my, my dad talked about courting when I was growing up. He also talked about the wireless and various other things like that as well. You buy one of those on your local high street. Uh, courting was where you used to go to uh, somebody's home and you would spend time with them. This is a prospective life partner, you'd spend time with them in the company of their family. And what was being discerned and judged was, I suppose, your, uh, your skill and your character. Who you were was the most important thing. That was courting. Now, in around 1914, I'm told, 
we began to see reference to this thing called dating. And what happened there was that relationships, or the formation of relationships, were taken out of the home environment. And instead of the man going into the home of uh, his prospective partner, he would go into the home and take her away, and they would go somewhere else. Now, what this meant was that relationships, the foundation of relationships was no longer about skill and character, but became about fun and romance. And that completely revolutionized uh, the way that relationships were formed. We now have apps. And relationships... <laughs> yes, Jeff. <laughs> Hallelujah. Although not my point. <laughs> we now have apps. And in many spheres of life, that is a thing of great value. But have we not seen a transition in the way that relationships are formed through the internet? Swipe right, if you like. Or was it the other way? Swipe. You know, you can just swipe. <laughs> Never done it, folks. This isn't another confession moment. There is uh, a huge amount that's lost without that culture of delaying gratification, of waiting. And actually, when we think about the spiritual life too, we have to be honest that if we, if we don't get from God what we want here and now, we begin to get frustrated very quickly. God, I want transformation but I don't want to wait. It's amazing how many, how many of our crises of faith are birthed in times of waiting. And really, the issue is not with God. It is with us and our impatience. We don't want to wait. And yet, if we're going to get anything and anywhere in the spiritual life, we will have to learn to wait. And we have to learn to understand that uh, fruit that lasts doesn't come in an instant. If you want a marriage that has a strong foundation, you won't build it on a one date. And if you want a life with God uh, that's going to last and stand the test of time, it's going to take time to grow. Now, we've been going through a series called Jesus and the One, and we've been looking at Jesus' encounters with different people. I think it's been great to see, and I, and I think perhaps we've painted the picture, maybe slightly, uh, that it can be just like that. Because often Jesus meets with people and there is just a change just like that. But of course, we've not seen the journey that that person's taken to get to the moment with Jesus. And today we're going to look at a slightly different encounter. In fact, it's a series of encounters between Jesus and this guy Nicodemus. And it's much more uh, long-term. Uh, there is a delay. There is a longer Journey, And I think that maybe is going to be helpful for some of us as we consider our own walk with God. And let's begin at the beginning with Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Here's what we read. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Let's just begin there. There was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus. Who is Nicodemus? Uh, Nicodemus, his name uh, means uh, God's victory or Israel's victory. And he was, it says, a Pharisee here. And a Pharisee is, is one of the sects in Israel at the time. And they were known, they were descendants of Ezra, the famous religious reformer. And they were known particularly for uh, obedience to the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And they were so uh, into 
the Torah, into the Jewish law. And in fact, they thought and they believed that if they could get all of Israel obeying the whole of the law perfectly for just one day, then the kingdom of God would come. They had this obsession, I think a godly obsession, with the coming of the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is one of these men, one of these Pharisees, really serious about God, a religious guy. And it says he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. That is, he was part of the Sanhedrin. He was a senior, a theologian, a senior Jewish person, somebody who people would listen to. When he walked into a room, Nicodemus walked into a room, you turned, and you faced him, and you gave him due respect. He was also a man, and in this culture, that meant something. In fact, it meant quite a lot. This is a person, and hear this, this is a person with a lot to lose. This is a person with a lot to lose, and that makes sense when we see what happens next. It says, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, he came to Jesus at night. Why? What is Nicodemus doing Come to Jesus, coming to Jesus at night? Well, what he's doing is hiding. Because Nicodemus has a lot to lose, and if Nicodemus were simply to approach Jesus in the day, there would be loads of people around. He would, he would risk, he would be at risk of losing something significant to himself, perhaps his street cred, his kudos, his status, and beyond that, maybe his comfort, his sense of self, and various other things, I'm sure, as well. Now, in John's gospel, the, the, the night, so there's this play between, John has this play between light and dark, night and day, all the way through the gospel. And night tends to refer uh, to evil, so it tends to be talking about evil or maybe unbelief. There's no suggestion here that Nicodemus is evil or doing anything evil, but certainly what John is alerting us to here is the fact that Nicodemus is coming to Jesus from a posture, from a position of unbelief. He's not convinced about who Jesus is and he's not willing to stake everything on Jesus. And so he comes to Jesus at night. He doesn't want to be discovered. There's perhaps also some fear there as well. Maybe that's the reason, the motivation for his coming to Jesus at night. He's afraid. He lacks trust. He's not yet fully convinced. If you like, Nicodemus is one of us. He's a skeptic. We're all skeptics today, folks. Really? Did it happen that way? Was it that? It's built into us. Our culture builds in skepticism. And there can be strengths to that. But Nicodemus is a skeptic. And yet... I think there's genuine interest. What does he say? Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. We know. He's, is he representing a group of other people? We'll never know that. But he's saying something. He's coming from this position of belief. There's something there. There's at least a, a hint in his heart that there's something to this Jesus thing. We know you're a teacher who's come from God. He's not convinced. He's not willing to stake it all. But there's some measure of faith but I think what's going on with Nicodemus is that there is a lot to lose and he's not yet willing to stake his life on Jesus this posture this place Nicodemus is in I think is is common it's common I think it's common for people who are on a journey to faith 
I think we all go through this place where we're just interested, we're beginning beginning to research and maybe find a bit out about God and who was Jesus and were those historical claims that Christians speak about, are they verifiable? Did somebody find his bones? You know, is the, is the resurrection even plausible? You know, these sorts of questions, that's a good place to be. It's not a bad place to be at all. And sometimes actually, even when we're convinced, even when we make a step towards Jesus and we commit even our whole selves to him, we still have these recurring moments where we question Again, I think that's part of faith. I think faith is a journey, and and like any journey, there are undulations. We have to be honest with that. I don't think it helps us to hide that, particularly if we're going through that. Maybe maybe what people would have said, a dark night. Uh, A dark night of the senses where God isn't close. We're not doing anything wrong to ask real questions, to do that in community. However, I think the problem we have often, just as an aside, is that we isolate when we do that. That's often, I think, the problem of, of spiritual journeying today is that we think we can solve these questions alone, and so we isolate from other people, and we step out of the very thing that would be uh, our salvation, which is other people. You know, honestly, you've got to hear this. You're going to hear God and see God primarily in your life through other people. The most common way you're going to experience the grace of God is through other people. And that's why Jesus uh, created a church. And the church isn't perfect. And if you've been here for more than five minutes, you already know that. Uh, but it's not. What we go on, what, what do we see? Next, uh, next one. Jesus, rep- uh, Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. So Nicodemus comes with a question. And the question he carries is the question that every Pharisee carries at their heart. When and how are we going to see the kingdom of God come? Just quickly, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of God. The kingdom of God is what it looks like when God takes charge. What would would a world with Jesus in charge look like? It would look more peaceful, more just, more hopeful, more gracious, more compassionate, more kind, more loving, braver, more adventurous. What a world. That's the kingdom of God. And, and, and that's Nicodemus' fascination. It's also Jesus' fascination. They're both fascinated with the kingdom of God. It's the essential message both of them are, are living for and preaching for. But while Nicodemus has a sense that it's going to come through obedience to the law, Jesus says, no, Nicodemus, you're wrong on that fact. There is another way. And only this way will the kingdom of God come. And that is the kingdom of God comes through rebirth. You have to be born again to receive it. And at this point, Nicodemus is just, what is going on? What do you mean? How can somebody be born again when they're old, Nicodemus asked? Surely that they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. I think, by the way, there is humor here. In Jewish culture, most, most humor comes through irony. There is humor here. This is, this is Nicodemus' Yeah, you can see him like, come on, Jesus. What are you talking about? Surely they cannot enter a second time in the mother's womb to be born. There's obviously some humor going on, but this is a serious point too. Nicodemus, though, has misunderstood the nature of the kingdom. Jesus is saying this rebirth is not outward. It's not primarily physical, though it certainly will manifest itself in physical ways. But it is an inward, it begins on the inside and it works its way out. You see, the law has to do with the outside and the problem with the law is it never makes its way within. You can obey the law and not have a transformed heart. 
But if you're reborn by God, if you receive the new life of Jesus, if you're born in the Spirit, whatever language you want to give to that, if you're born again, it begins on the inside and that transformation takes its place and makes its journey all the way through your life and it will affect you physically. You have to be born again. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit. Now we're not gonna do too much here because there's a lot. But I just want to pick these two words out because Jesus is fleshing out what he's been discussing with Nicodemus so far. And I just want to say these two words, water and the spirit. Water refers to baptism. Baptism is a Christian picture of death. To baptize, that word in the original Greek means to immerse or plunge. The point about when a ship is baptized, it means it's sunk. Jesus is saying, look, if you want to come into the kingdom, the first thing you've got to understand is you need to be sunk. You've got to die. The way into the kingdom is through death and resurrection. Just as somebody is taken under the water in baptism and so then raised up afterward, so you, Nicodemus, if you want to get into the kingdom, you've got to get in the womb and then back out again. You've got to be immersed. You've got to be plunged. What he's saying, and we have to hear this, is you can't get into the kingdom of God, you can't come to Jesus, you can't experience the life of the kingdom of God, and more and more of the life of the kingdom of God by osmosis. You can't shuffle your way in, you don't get into the kingdom of God because someone in your family was a pastor five generations ago, or because your husband or your wife is really serious about Jesus. Because you, you had a tradition of going to church 30 years ago. But, you know, the, the way into the kingdom of God is by death and resurrection. It's by coming to Christ. And the only way any of us come into the kingdom of God is on our knees. Saying to him, Jesus, thank you for your grace. I receive your grace and I come to you just as I am. And I give my whole self to you. I'm not going to hide anything from you. I'm done faking it. I'm done trying to earn my way in. I'm not going to even try and be good anymore. I'm just going to come to you as I am, and I, I pray you'd receive me as I am. The only way into the kingdom of God is through baptism. It's through water. It's through repentance. It's through return. Water and the Spirit. It's a gift of the Spirit, folks. As we die to ourselves, to our lives, to the things that maybe we've been leaning on, the career, the attainments, the obedience. Yeah, it's the religious trick, isn't it? That I will put God in my debt by my obedience. And he'll let me into the kingdom because I'm obedient. And then you find out Jesus wants something so much more than obedience. He wants your heart. He wants surrender. It's much deeper than obedience. But it's not just water, it's the spirit too, that Jesus wants to fill us with his spirit and so enable us, so transform us that we become more and more of those people that we long to be. 
Calvin put it this way, he means not the amendment of a part, but the renewal of the whole nature. Hence it follows that there is nothing in us that is not defective. What the new birth is about is not a renewal of the part, but a whole new way to be human. And it's for everyone. It's available to everyone. Final uh, brief image here. Uh, John says, and this is perplexing, or Jesus says rather, just... Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life in him. There's an image here taken from Israel's history. And what happened, Israel was disobedient at some point in their history, and snakes came into the camp and bit people. And God said, look, Moses, if you make a snake, if you fashion a snake out of whatever it was, and lift it up, everyone who looks upon this snake will not die. Jesus is saying a little bit like, look, evil has come into the camp. That's the problem. That's why we're not experiencing the kingdom of God. And just as Moses lifted up the snake and all who looked at it were saved, so there will come a day when another snake himself, Jesus in this point, will be lifted up. And as people look on and believe in Jesus, they'll be saved. He's calling Nicodemus to reliance, but Nicodemus isn't ready to go. He's got too much to lose. Then we skip on and we see later in John's gospel, Nicodemus had gone earlier to Jesus, was not one of their own number, asked, does our law, and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man first without hearing him to find what he has been doing? They replied, in other words, his fellow Pharisees and members of the Sanhedrin, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you'll find that a prophet does not come out from Galilee. All I want to show you here very quickly is that Nicodemus is still on his journey. He wasn't ready to respond when he met Jesus the first time, but he's on his journey. There's, I just think there's a, I might be reading into it too much, but honestly, the whole sermon's that, so we're going to go with that today. I think there's a measure of, there's something, it's just like, a, ah, that, he's just trying, isn't he? Can you, can you see it? Does our, does our Lord condemn a man first without hearing him to find, he doesn't want Jesus to die. He's at least sympathetic to Jesus. I think there's progress. Nicodemus is on his journey. We all have these moments too. Maybe actually really like this. You're in the, uh, the lunchroom at work or at school or at uni or wherever and you just, somebody just, just bashes the church or bashes Jesus and you just, you're hurt by it. You're not ready yet to stand up fully but you just, ah, there's part of your journey, there's a stirring in you. And then we close with a third picture of Nicodemus which brings it all together. Here's what we read. Later, this is after the death of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was the disciple of Jesus, but secretly, just like Nicodemus, by the way, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus bought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. I want to show you this. A mixture of myrrh and aloes, 75 pounds. This is 35 kilograms. It's not a small amount. I don't know how comfortable you feel about the prospect of carrying something that's 35 kilograms out of this place and hauling it around with you today. But this is what Nicodemus did for Jesus. It'd be very difficult to carry myrrh and aloes of 35 kilograms and not be seen. It'd be almost impossible to carry that weight and not be smelled before you even arrived. Nicodemus, folks, has come out of hiding This time, Nicodemus doesn't come in the night. He comes, granted, as night is drawing near, in a hurry 
to get this done before the Sabbath begins, but he comes publicly. This is a key moment in his journey. He's stepping out of the darkness. He's stepping into the night. You know, this amount of myrrh and aloes uh, would be the kind of quantities that would be brought for a king. This isn't a regular amount. This isn't a normal amount. This is the kind of quantity of uh, smelly stuff. This is more than walking past lush on the high street. This is, this is pungent. This is preparation of a king for their burial. Nicodemus has seen something. He's captured something. And I just wonder what helps him make the transition. What is it that enables Nicodemus to come into the light? Could it be? And this is conjecture, but I'm going to go with it. Could it be that he saw Jesus on the cross? Could it be that the words Jesus said to him, unless when the Son of Man is lifted up, he'll draw people to himself, that just as the snake is lifted up, uh, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, and anyone who... uh, sees him will be saved. Could it be that those words weren't just a description for Nicodemus, but a prophecy? Could it be that he captured a glimpse of Jesus on the cross and he saw, and he was enabled as he saw Jesus to come uh, into the kingdom, not in strength, not in the strength of his legal obedience, not in the strength of his status in the Sanhedrin, not in the strength of his attainment, not in the strength of Uh, His relational capacity or his political acumen, but in the weakness of his devotion and surrender to Jesus. Could it be that in seeing Jesus on the cross, he caught what this whole thing was about, that the only way into the kingdom was, in fact, rebirth? It was death, it was water, and it was spirit. Here he is preparing Jesus for the greatest miracle, the greatest moment in history. Little does Nicodemus know he's preparing Jesus for resurrection. Last person to touch Jesus' body before the resurrection. Here, Nicodemus. What a journey. What a moment. And it's not just one stage. It's not rock and roll. It's not the kind of thing you'd necessarily put in a book. Or a testimony and... Send it around the world, although that did happen actually. (laughs) That's why we're reading it today. It takes time. You know, we don't know how many times Nicodemus interacted with Jesus, but enough, enough. And here he is stepping into the light. Here he is experiencing grace. Here he is laying his own gift before Jesus, recognizing, I think, Jesus as his king, stepping into a new measure of faith. Here he is, I think, a disciple. Again, I don't know fully, but I think a disciple. I think a follower. I think this is a devotion that uh, befits a disciple. So what? Church, it begins with encounter. It begins with uh, encounter with Jesus. It's all about grace. The kingdom comes and we experience the goodness of the kingdom through encounter with Jesus. You know, we want to be a church that uh, prioritizes our, our foundation. The, the, the trunk of the tree of Trinity has got to be Jesus and his presence. 
And our life as disciples has to be rooted in an, a regular and ongoing encounter with God. And for us, it's got to be about meeting with God. And I want to say to you today that that isn't always going to be uh, smoke and lights, high octane stuff, though by the grace of God, I pray that over you. <laughs> I pray that there are moments in your life you can look back and say, wow, God really met me there. Heaven was close there. But often, guys, often, most often, most often, it's a little step in front of another little step. It's one step in front of another. It's little encounter after little encounter. It's the smile of somebody at church. It's somebody saying, hey, it's so good to see you. You know, the grace of God is communicated in these simple ways. And if we don't understand that, then we exclude the, most of the data. And we're going to be disappointed in God. No, it's these momentary things, it's these small things, but it does begin with his grace, his encounter. Church, what's your story? When did your encounter begin? When did your journey begin? How's it been for you? It's not gonna be like it's been for them, but how's it been for you? Go home this afternoon, this evening, trace it out. Write down the stories of when you did experience him, subtle ways, big ways, whatever it is. Because that's your testimony of transformation. You've got to hold on to that. It begins with encounter. Uh, but encounter has to pass through a moment of water, of baptism. There comes a moment. I believe in moments. I believe in the significance and the symbolism of moments. I believe that each of us must pass through a moment where we do unequivocally and fully dedicate ourselves to Christ. And it's not just sometimes a moment. It's moments. It's moments. It's ever-increasing devotion and surrender to him. But there are moments if you're not baptized here and you need to be baptized because you're a follower of Jesus, I, I'm calling you. Come get baptized. We'd love to baptize you. Let that be your moment, your public declaration of, of solidarity with Jesus. Climb into the waters and do what he did. Die to receive new life. There comes a moment of, of water. And I just wonder for, for us church today, this is a day of water for us. This is a day of water. This is a day where we need to give up again. What stands in the way? Maybe status for us. Like Nicodemus, what is it that's difficult to let go of? Maybe it's something close to us or someone, maybe it's even the future and destiny of our children. And we've been holding it more closely than we should. Maybe it's the question of whether or not we're going to get married. And if so, to whom? And the desire to control that, whether or not we'll be able to have children whether or not our career will go as we hope, whether or not our health will be as we wish it would. These are some of the things we have to surrender. And then finally, the spirit. Because when we create space for Jesus, he fills it with his goodness. He fills it with his spirit. And the spirit gives life. The spirit gives life. Where is it today you need a measure of God's spirit? Where is it today you need to be filled afresh? Let's stand and we'll ask him to do just that now.